And according to an American doctor treating many of the Chernobyl victims in Moscow, the death toll will go higher. Dean Reynolds reports from Moscow. For the last two weeks, this hospital in Moscow has been the scene of a life-and-death struggle. It is here that Dr. Robert Gale, an American surgeon, is performing bone marrow transplants on some of the most seriously injured victims of the Chernobyl accident. His work drew special praise last night from Soviet General Secretary Gorbachev during an address to his countrymen. I'd like to mention the participation of American doctors Gale and Sarasaki in treating the injured. Today at a news conference in Moscow, Dr. Gale broke a two-week-long silence on the situation that the Soviets are now facing. Gale had a sober but medically realistic assessment of his patients' chances. Additional deaths are unavoidable. We hope that a substantial number of these patients will survive. Gale said the Chernobyl accident should teach the world a lesson. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. So 33 years after the worst nuclear disaster in human history, the name Chernobyl rings ominously and continues to inspire fear, outrage, debate, and even grim curiosity. It's a captivating story now being retold dramatically, though not completely accurately, through the new hit miniseries on HBO. As many of you know, we've had some pretty unique people on this program, but perhaps today's guest is more unique than most. Dr. Robert Gale is an academic physician who spent his career researching and treating patients with leukemia and other bone marrow disorders. He's published over 800 research articles and books. He's an international expert on nuclear disaster response. And get this, he's even written for and appeared in several Hollywood movies. Oh, he's also the shared recipient of an Emmy Award for his work in a 60 Minutes piece. As you just heard in the opening news clip, Dr. Gale rose to international prominence after being the first American physician invited by the Soviet Union to treat patients suffering acute radiation trauma after Chernobyl. That's where our journey begins on this special two-part episode. It was a rare privilege to talk to Dr. Gale. We think you're going to enjoy it. With that said, let's get started. You've had a lot of hats throughout your career. I think it's probably best to start just to give us an idea. If we go back to the mid to late 1980s, just before the Chernobyl incident, where did we find you uh, in your career and, and uh, your research interests at that time? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, my, uh, at, at, in 1986, I would have been a, um, on the faculty of the UCLA School of Medicine. And my, um, we had a very um, active uh, hematopoietic cell transplant program at UCLA at that time. So that was a major activity. My my laboratory work um, was focused on the molecular biology of leukemia, work right. that I had started in uh, at the Weizmann Institute in Israel. Um, so that that would be, you know, physically in Los Angeles. Well, you know, right now, so we're looking at early June 2019. There's a series on HBO right now, a docudrama, and it's getting a lot of attention in the press. So it's bringing a lot of uh, people's attention back to the incident in spring of 1986 at Chernobyl. And there's so much to talk to you about today. So we don't want to spend the whole episode debunking the docudrama that's on, a, you know, another network right now. But you've got an interesting series on right. the cancer letter about this right now. And I think it's it's helpful to start here because... These types of things do paint an image in people's minds of what happened, right or wrong. 
and it is important to clear it up. And uh, there are a lot of witnesses to this incident, but very, very few who were actually invited from the West and very few who could go back and talk to the free press about what they saw. But you were one of them. How in the world did you find yourself on your way to the Soviet Union really days or weeks after this incident happened? Take us, take us through that path and what led up to it. Sure. Uh, we need a bit of background. Uh, one is that um, I've been involved in Soviet affairs since the, uh, in the scientific context and since the, I would say, early 1970s when I began visiting in Moscow. This was uh, in the height of the Cold War. Um, so um, the second point is that um, I was um, quite friendly with a uh, a, uh, an American industrialist, I would say an American-Russian industrialist, Armin Hammer, who was um, the um, CEO of Occidental Petroleum. And he and I um, made a number of trips to the Soviet Union for a variety of reasons. I have to say that most of them were attend to attend funerals of um, executive secretaries of the Communist Party um, and drop off Chernyenko and so forth. Um, right. We also made a n number of trips to the Soviet Union to, uh, uh, and that's where I first met Mikhail Gorbachev at the um, funeral of Andropov, who was his uh, chief at the KGB. So uh, I, without getting too lost in details, you know, the Soviets knew me very well. I'm sure I, I know I had a very reasonable KGB dossier. And I also was well known in the um, in the academy. Um, so, and just to, you know, the, help us understand yeah. too. I mean, how I was curious, how common was it for researchers like you to be traveling over there? Um, I mean, obviously, Armin Hammer, he's you know he's an international CEO, so he's he's got business dealings all over the world. But was there a lot of collaboration with Soviet medical colleagues at that time? And when you went to an international conference. Were they, was it common to see them there, or were they more isolated? No, I mean, of course we had international conferences, but, um, it, you know, there was an unavoidable political overtone to any scientific interaction. Hmm. You know, when it came to, to nuclear issues, of course, this was heightened. So um, there were... There were were very, very few Americans freely roaming around the Soviet Union in the 1970s and early 1980s. So, um, but I, I've always felt quite comfortable there. Interesting. Well, so back on this, you actually met Gorbachev, um, and before the incident, he was only um, president, what, about 13 months or so before the accident. So you had met him prior to his rise to power. But he was still you know, right. moving up in the Communist Party. Was it just a passing handshake at one of these funerals, or did you actually get the chance to interact with him? I mean, how well did you know him? No, very. At that point, you know, now I know him quite well. But um, at that point, it was just in you know passing through the uh, a building that's called the Hall of Columns in Moscow, where state funerals are held. Sure. So. Back to, you know, 1986 here. So you, you had many contacts there. You were well-known, you know, in certain circles there. Um, 
tell us how you first heard about the incident there. Was it through the news? Um, what did you know and what didn't you know at that point? Well, my knowledge of the accident was pretty much the same as anybody else. So, uh, but, um, you know, having studied the Soviet nuclear um, industry and knowing my hematology colleagues um, and knowing the scale of the accident, you know, it was very obvious to me that they, um, my, my Russian colleagues or Soviet colleagues, you know, had developed the atomic bomb, their atomic bomb beginning in uh, about 1950. And they had quite a few accidents, um, some of which were known in the West, others which were suspected, and even others unknown. So they, they had quite a bit of experience, I would say more than we had, in dealing with radiation uh, victims, accident victims. But uh, my colleagues there did not have resources. You know, they, they had um, no kind of infrastructure um, and resources to deal with something of this magnitude. And because of that, I felt this was, you know, that we would try to lend a hand. And what I did was, um, first I got Armin Hammer to, uh, you know, who was better known than me um, in the Soviet Union, of course, to, you know, put in a good word for me that I would, um, that I was trustworthy and that, you know, they could rely on me. Sure. Uh, and then I asked Hammer to send, because the Occidental Petroleum had offices in um, in Moscow, and uh, some of the workers in those offices were, were connected to the Soviet military and to the KGB. So I asked Hammer to get word to um, Moscow, knowing it would get to the Politburo, that I was willing to come um, and bring resources. And then quite quickly, you know, within a day, um, and this was just days after the accident, maybe three or four days, uh, I got a call from uh, Anatoly Dubrin, who I'd also met uh, previously. He was the Soviet ambassador to Washington forever. I see. And he called me He called me uh, in the middle of the night, and he said that Mr. Gorbachev would like me to come to uh, Moscow. I, I was quite surprised when he said Moscow, because... I thought he would go, want me to go directly to Kiev. Right. I didn't know at that. I didn't know at that time that about a uh, little more than two hundred of the most seriously affected first responders had been flown to Moscow and were at the Institute of Biophysics. So you you offered so your off, help, off I, but it ha yeah, it had to be pretty surprising at this call only a few days later and. You know, I, I was really trying. I mean, I was very young when this happened, so I, I was not watching the news. Um, I won't even say how young right. I am. But um, looking back, there was so little that anyone knew about this. I mean, the, the, the Swedes were the first ones to detect atmospheric radiation, from what I recall. And um, that's, that's the correct. First, yeah. yeah, that was the first um, instance of in, in the international news media. But it had to be a little unnerving, too, right? Like, what am I going into? I mean, what were your feelings like at that moment? Well, um you know, as as a physician, you know that we have this um, fantasy of indestructibility. <laughs> um, so, you know, we give mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation to people with uh, hepatitis 
Mass and so forth and so on get covered in blood in the OR. Right. So you know we think we're we're we think we're immutable. Uh, I did notice on the flight going into Moscow that I was the only person on the plane, huh. <laughs> and that the <laughs> and that the person the um, the crew um, had Geiger counters that they'd been given. Wow. So. Uh, yeah. So, so word was out at uh, that point. I mean, there was, there was a level of concern. Oh, oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, the one good thing I could say is that at that time, you know, going through immigration in Sheremetovo took hours. But um, when there was no one on the plane and I was met by, you know, KGB people, I had one of my fastest entries into the Soviet Union. Huh. That's amazing. I mean, didn't anybody even on the plane, any of the flight crew, ask you what you were going over there for? I mean, they... Well, you know, I, my first flight was from Los Angeles, I think, to Frankfurt. I was a little surprised as soon as they turned off the seatbelt sign. I, I guess the word had gotten out that the Russians had invited me to come to Moscow. Um, and so as soon as the seatbelt sign went off on the way to Frankfurt, I was amazed to discover that everybody else in business class was a newspaper reporter. Hmm. Yeah. So they 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 had gotten book they had booked t- tickets on that flight and immediately peppered me with you know questions. I had no answers at that point because I didn't really know what was what, what exactly was going on. Sure. Uh, but nobody was really interested in getting on the plane flying into Moscow. So I lost those guys in Frankfurt. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Okay, so you arrive in Moscow, and, and how many days after the incident was this? Because we're talking about what, April. I would say about four. Okay. Um, got there. I remember waking up on uh, May Day, so it you know it was the the end of April, so it could be three or four days later. So, had you had interactions with KGB people that you knew of before? I mean, maybe you did and didn't know, but uh, what what was that interaction like at the airport? Well, going back to the early seventies, of course, you know. And being there on a, you know, not as a tourist, but, you know, coming, going to, to meetings. And um, so, you know, you, it's unavoidable that you would have interactions with the KGB and that they would have a dossier on you. I always found, I mean, not that I'm an apologist for the KGB, but I do remember one or two times getting lost in a snowstorm in, in Moscow and some guy, you know, hopping out of the woodwork and helping me get a taxi. So they, <laughs> when they're not, uh, when, I mean, they, they don't want, you know, when, when you're um, under their charge, when, you know, you're, they don't want you getting, uh, you know, into trouble or getting hit by a car or getting lost when they're the ones who are supposed to be watching you. So they can occasionally, you know, bail you out of a nasty situation. <laughs> That's that's amazing. It's like something out of a Tom Clancy novel. Well, uh, speaking of another uh, novel, perhaps, the hospital you were going to in Moscow was also known as Hospital Number 6, which sounds like something right, right. out of George or- Orwell's uh, books. But it, what what was this hospital exactly? Because you, you mentioned earlier, and you were you know surprised, really, to see some of the, uh, I guess, indications of experience they'd had with radiation trauma before. 
Tell us what this hospital was like, just as a physician coming in, looking at it, comparing it to hospitals back in the United States. What what really struck you at, uh, when you entered this facility? Yeah, well, um, you know, one thing I have to say is that um, as a, you know, hospital number six sounds very strange to us, to an American's ears. But in most of the world, you know, hospitals have numbers, not names. So um, hospital number six is not all that odd. It, there, there are a, a string, or there were a string, I should say, of hospitals that were associated with the Kremlin. So if you were, um, you know, what is called in Russian an operachnik, you were part of the system, you had access to a series of different kinds of hospitals, heart hospitals mm. or cancer hospitals or general hospitals that other people didn't have access to. So hospital number six was, um, firstly, it was guarded because, in part because of that. Of course, when these victims were flown there, you know, we had the army um, guarding the hospital. But it's immediately physically attached to the Institute for Biophysics. There's a close relationship between the people who would have basic science expertise in uh, radiation biology and the physicians on the wards, uh, I mean, there were other services in hospitals like surgery and so forth, but the physicians on the wards of, say, hematology would be intimately involved with the, the activities of the Institute of Biophysics. I see. That, that would bring you into immediate contact with the Soviet nuclear program. So you, you can see this is not your, um, your average hematology service. Okay, so not your normal hospital. You, you're, and this is the first time you'd ever entered this hospital before in your travels, right? Right. So Correct. there were not many patients arriving initially. These were some of the first responders, the firemen, a few of the workers in the plant. Um, were you asked not to talk about this when you got back? Were you given any instructions? Were they concerned about the visibility here? I mean, what... What was communicated to you, and then how how long before you saw the first patients? Yeah, I, firstly, I say it, it it really works the other way. That is, the minute I arrived, you know, I told my Soviet colleagues both. When I say my Soviet colleagues, I mean the physicians, mm -hmm. but I also made made it known to you know my handlers that you know I was there as their guest and that I wouldn't be speaking to anybody ask me to. Gotcha. Um, I got there, I got there late in the day and, uh, I was besides, you know, the political types meeting me, I was met by, um, one of my medical colleagues, Alexander Baranov. And early the next morning, I mean, immediately after getting there, uh, I was in the hospital. So, these 200 people were already at the hospital, more, a little more than 200. So, um, yeah, my first contact was uh, within 12 hours of arriving. Well, let's uh, talk for a moment about bone marrow and the effects of radiation, because this is, you know, your particular specialty. What what happens there? Just, you know, we do have a, a medical audience, but it, you know, we have a sizable one that isn't. Um, just let's get everybody up to speed on what is happening and what, you know, your specific value was there, why, why they wanted you there. Sure. Well, I mean, the 
the whole thing will fall together if we we think about um, that that the bone marrow is one of the most sensitive, rapidly dividing cells, the GI tract, the bone marrow, and the skin. Um, These rapidly dividing cells are the most sensitive cells to exposure to ionizing radiation. So if you if you take a human and expose them to radiation or chemotherapy like we do in cancer patients, uh, you are going to stop the production of blood cells. And because, um, for example, granulocytes live only a couple of hours, um, red cells, as you know, live 120 days. Right. Uh, we make we make several billion of these cells every day. If you don't make three billion red cells every day, you die. So when you shut off that production, very soon you are going to run out of these cells. So what's going to happen? You are going to be at risk for bleeding from a lack of platelets, infection from a lack of granulocytes, and eventually, but over a longer period of time, you become anemic. So going back to the concept of a transplant, bone hematopoietic cell or a bone marrow transplant, you know, uh, we're treating patients with cancer, but I would say predominantly blood cancers like leukemia. So we take um, these people, we find a donor if we're lucky, then we expose them to very, very high of ionizing radiations. Now, I mean, the idea is we wipe out the leukemia, hopefully with the radiation, but it has no discriminatory effect. So we wipe out their bone marrow, we wipe out their leukemia, now they're without leukemia, but they're going to die of bone marrow failure. But we're going to rescue them by giving them bone marrow from an appropriate donor. At that time, we were using HLA identical siblings almost exclusively. Right. So if you think about a nuclear accident, it's very much like what we were doing every day. We were doing hundreds of bone marrow transplants for leukemia, but these were normal people whose bone marrow was wiped out with radiation just like we were doing routinely and now we have to figure out how to rescue them Uh, one way is by giving them someone else's bone marrow and we did that in a small number of the Chernobyl victims but there are other tricks that we have which I can tell you about yeah in fact one of those tricks was um, pretty interesting I mean there's a drug that was brought into the Soviet Union let's let's talk about that because that's that's an unbelievable story yeah well, uh, um, so these are um, molecularly cloned hematopoietic growth factors, but we can think of just like a thyroid hormone stimulates um, the thyroid. We have hormones um, that we've molecularly cloned that will stimulate the bone marrow to produce more red would make you make more red cells, but we, we actually have a couple of hormones that will encourage the production of granulocytes. So that's, granulocytes are our big problem because we can give platelet transfusions, we can give red blood cell transfusions, but we can't give granulocyte transfusions effectively. Mm-hmm. So my colleagues and I, and a number of other laboratories around the world, my colleagues and I at UCLA, Dave Goldie and Marty Klein, we were working with some biotech companies to um, isolate the genes that uh, encode these hormones and then produce, you know, molecularly clone them and then produce them in yeast. 
So we would have a, you know, just like you have a vial of thyroid hormone, we have a vial of these hormones. And they had been studied in rats, in mice, in dogs, and monkeys. And they, if you irradiate a monkey and give this hormone, you will save its life. But they had never been given to human beings. Um, but the Chernobyl accident, you know, wasn't extreme. They were on the launching pad for development in humans, but they hadn't yet been given to humans. And um, we got the idea that this would be an effective way of saving lives after the Chernobyl accident. The question was how to get our hands on this. Well, I had some context as what was Sandoz at the time in Basel. And I convinced them. Which is a Novartis today, right? I think. In every circumstances. <clears throat> right. Um, I convinced one of my colleagues there to um, take some of this molecularly cloned material and to put it uh, in the suitcase of a, a businessman, a Swiss businessman. This was unknown to him. Huh. Uh, of course, we, we asked the... Um, uh, the, the Politburo had established a um, deal with the Chernobyl accident, and my colleague Andrei Vorobyov from the Hematology, All Russia Hematology Institute, was on that commission, and we got the commission's permission to bring this drug into Russia. We didn't want to do anything that was, you know, illegal, of course. Um, but the problem arose that the um, because it had never been given to human beings. Um, the Soviets, you know, understandably said, well, we don't want our citizens to be guinea pigs. So Vorobiev and I were in a quandary. We had the drug. We knew it would work. We treated monkeys and saved them from radiation injury. And so, you know, how were we going to convince the Politburo Commission to let us give the drug? So I said to, to Vorobiev, okay, you give the drug to me. I'm quite sure it's safe. Amazing. You give the drug to me if I don't die tomorrow. Um, they Soviets, the victims, won't be the first humans. <laughs> we were over that, that hurdle. Um, well, Vorobiev, who I have to tell you is about, um, he just turned 90 the other day. So he was about uh, 70, um, or, or maybe 65. And David Vorobiev said, well, if you're going to inject, if I'm going to inject you, then you inject me. So we injected each other with what we calculated would be the appropriate dose from our monkey studies. And uh, I went uh, to the U.S. Embassy to have dinner with Art Hartman, who was the American ambassador, who, of course, was terribly curious to know what, what was going on in hospital number six. Yeah, um, and he's getting questions and, from his superiors, too, I imagine. Sure. Um, and um, Vorobiev, uh, I left Vorobiev at the hospital, and uh, Everything was going fine. I was absolutely fine. And then uh, in the middle of dinner, I got a call from the hospital that Professor Vorobiev is dying. Huh. Uh, that, you know, that, that didn't sound good for me ever leaving the Soviet Union. <laughs> oh, oh. No um, kidding. And so I went back to the hospital and I found Vorobiev in the coronary care unit, white as a sheet, complaining of chest pain. Um, and they were convinced he'd had a myocardial infarction. But I examined him, you know, carefully, and uh, it became clear to me that his pain was in his sternum. It, it, it you know, was um, 
it was bone pain. It wasn't cardiac pain. Um, and what we realized was that when you uh, give this hormone and the bone marrow turns on, um, and you get this feeling, in, you know, some people get this feeling in the bone marrow that um, feels like, you know, a crushing pain. And um, I didn't have it, but Vorobiev had it. Of course, the monkeys had never said anything about it at all. No, they never do, do they? Well, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. they're stoic. That's right, uh, exactly. They're tough. <laughs> any event, Vorobiev, I mean, fortunately, Vorobiev survived. And by the next morning, we our white counts, you know, our granulocyte counts had gone from, you know, uh, five or 7,000 to 25,000 and then 50,000. And so um, we felt quite comfortable that we could assure the Politburo Commission that, yeah, it's safe and your citizens are not going to be the first humans to get it. And we use that quite liberally because it has a, a lot of efficacy and uh, very few, if any, safety concerns, certainly not under these circumstances. I mean, that really is remarkable, Robert. I mean, it's, I know, I know your answer to this is going to be, I'm a physician, this is my job, but I don't know that everybody would have done that. You know, I mean, what was it at that moment? Did you just see the emergency in front of you and this was the only way to, you know, that you could make this happen? Um, well, I mean, what, you know, what, I mean, you was it the, your connection to the Soviet people? I mean, what, what was, what was the uh, impetus here? Well, I, I think um, any physician, frankly, would, I mean, you, you have a, I mean, you have a bunch of young, healthy people, first responders who are, um, you know, exposed to radiation. They're going to die or they have a high probability of death. And you have a drug and you have a bunch of bureaucratic hurdles. I mean, every physician is going to, um, and you have experience with it you know, right. in subhuman primates. That's true. It's not unknown. So, to I you, mean, uh... I think, I think almost any one of us, um, you know, would would do what we did, you know, what Vorobiev and I did. Well, I, just looking at it from my end, it's very impressive. Um, but also, so are a lot of the other characters in the story. Um, let's talk about some of these first responders. There was even a physician, I believe, that you saw in the hospital who later died. Um, let's talk, as you said, there's around 200 that had made it to hospital number six initially. Um, how many were critically ill? And, and let's talk about maybe a few of your interactions with them. You know, help us understand who these people sure. were. Uh, you know, the, the pr predominantly, these are firefighters um, and um, nuclear technicians. Those are the people that were involved, um, who have the nuclear technicians that happened to be on duty um, that evening, in particularly in uh, reactor number four complex. Um, so the, um, you, you know, fire... these L'Oreal plants. And so when these firefighters responded to an emergency call, you know, they just assumed it was one, you know, in a, just the usual fire. Sure. And uh, when they, and, you know, when you have one of these industrial fires, you have the release of chemicals and burning graphite. And so it's not immediately obvious 
that something, you know, extraordinary is going on. Um, but quickly, people started getting nauseated and so forth and so on and developing skin burns that um, in areas that, that they were not exposed to the fire, for example, under their clothing, things like that. Sure. From beta, beta radiations. So, um, you know, these guys um, were not, you know, they don't have a background. The first responders don't have a, a radiation background. They, you know, they, they don't really know what's going on. So they're frightened. Um, they're very brave, they're fright but they're frightened. And we have to sort of explain to them. Now, when I, when I identified these slightly more than 200 people... Of, Let me stop you, you know, for when, just a minute. Do you speak yeah, Russian, or were you going through a, an interpreter this entire yeah. time? Okay. Uh, well, um, I, I would say a third grade Russian. Okay. Let's say. Um, so, um, you know, we, it, it, these things immediately become military operations. You know, when you have to evacuate people and so forth and so on, um, you're talking about a major military operation. Sure. So we brought, uh, we brought hundreds of people to Moscow. And the 200 or so that I'm referring to are the people that we decided had, had received the radiation dose sufficiently high to, put, to require medical attention. So a lot more people had been exposed to radiation, but we have sort of a cutoff of uh, something called two grays um, or 2,000 millisieverts. And that's when we start to get worried. And we, we identified 203 or 204 of these people as getting a dose. We estimated getting a dose um, in that range. Now, uh, you know, it's a complicated situation. I think people who plan for these nuclear events but have never seen one don't really understand how complicated this is because in addition to these radiation damages, you have a fire, you have the release of chemicals. And as a physician, you're looking at someone, and it's impossible for to really. So someone's skin is falling off. When I, I guess, an exaggeration, but I mean, someone who is burned, let's say, uh, second degree burns, it's not immediately apparent if that's radiation or that is um, the fire or chemical or all three. Sure. Because there, there's a high concordance. Now, the problem is that these things work um, together to, um, to cause problems. If, if I take a mouse and I give it a certain dose of radiation that the mouse can survive, uh, um, let's say, four grays of radiation. But if I take the same mouse and I burn just a one-meter area of its skin, I give them the same dose of radiation, it dies. So the, the amount of radiation a creature can tolerate is um, is dependent on other injuries. Um, and so um, we kind of face a number of problems. I don't want to use too much time or make it too technical, but let me just say we, we almost never know what the correct radiation dose is. So we, we, we look at their blood, we look at their blood counts, we look at their chromosomes, we try to model it in the computer, we take pieces of, you know, for example, we can take a piece of their dental enamel 
and do something called electron spin resonance and try to calculate it. But at the end of the day, we have a, a range of what we think the doses are, but we're not sure. And then we have uh, to consider all these other things, burns and chemical exposures and things. And now we have to make a decision about interventions that may be life-threatening. I mean, we, we could rescue someone entirely from their radiation damage and have them die from smoke inhalation. Wow. So you, 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 know, you, know that you, you know that you have to make, we don't have the time to sort it out. If we wait a week or two, for things, there's no longer any benefit of doing a bone marrow transplant, for example. So you're, did you feel you're like you had the diagnostic equipment that you needed there? Was anything else brought in? I mean, talk about the tools that you had available. Well, um, I was, yeah, well, I was, um, well, we had good, let me say, diagnostic equipment in the sense that, as I mentioned, my Soviet colleagues had had more experience than me mm -hmm. and more experience than I would say than most Americans in estimating radiation dose. So they were really good at that. But, you know, we lacked a number of uh, things that are commonplace in the United States, like a, a blood cell separator where you hook someone up to a machine and you're able to suck off platelets or suck off white blood cells and things like that. Right. Um, I was able to bring uh, one, two colleagues from UCLA, Paul Tarasaki, who died recently. I think, um, I mean, he is the or one of the most experienced people doing HLA typing in the world. And that's the method we use to identify kidney donors and heart donors and bone marrow donors. So Paul uh, Tarasaki, the, the Russians let me bring Paul over. Uh, they let me bring Richard Champlin over, who was my um, deputy at UCLA. But um, there was one other thing I needed, and I think this is an important uh, thing that when we do a bone marrow transplant, we, we can cause a bad thing called graft-versus-host disease, where the immune cells in the, in the graft for the donor can attack and can kill the recipient. And at that time, the only way we had of preventing that was to remove these T lymphocytes from the bone marrow graft. And the person in the world with the experience doing that is an Israeli colleague of mine from the Weizmann Institute named Yir Reisner. And so I told the Russians, um, look, you know, I've got to bring Yir Reisner here. And they said, well, we don't have any diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, and I sort of said the same thing I said with the growth factors, you know, get them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this would be like us get asking, a, you know, a physician from Iran to come over here right now. I mean, it would be exactly difficult, yeah. right? Right. So, um, you know, I used to say, I said, look, you know, we want to save these guys. And Reisner you know, I need Reisner's technical skills here. So they agreed. I mean, and they don't get proper credit for these kinds of decisions, but I think very few governments would do this. So they said, and then my problem was Reisner, because Reisner said, uh, we don't have diplomatic relations with Russia. <laughs> I'm not coming. <laughs> I'm not coming. I'm not getting off the plane unless I see your face at the airport. 
Uh, he absolutely refused to get off the plane. Uh, so in the midst of all of this um, goings on in hospital number six, I had to go out to Sheremetyevo and uh, coax Yair off the plane. Um, but once we... <laughs> Once we got him there, he, he did a brilliant, he did a brilliant job. Absolutely brilliant job. I mean, that really is amazing. And I was thinking about that preparing for this. It, you know, we, there's so much we can criticize the Soviet government for, but it does seem that some people, maybe most, were trying hard to help help here and, and doing whatever they could, even at, you know, at the risk of losing face. And that was very important to the Soviets, right? Um, and even Gorbachev being, you know, uh, um, president for only so long, just over a year, um, this was a big test of his leadership, um, even a threat to it. So, uh, and I'm not sure that, you know, if the you know tables were turned, if we would have done exactly the same if we needed these resources. But you're right. I mean, it, yeah. they do deserve credit for this. It's, it, I mean, it's, uh, we shouldn't speculate, but I mean, we can consider, you know, I was immersed in the midst of the Soviet nuclear program, in the midst of the Cold War. Um, one, one Russian newspaper called me, um, I don't know where they get this idea, they are the greatest uh, spy <laughs> in the latter half of the 20th century, because I had access to the entire you know, the Soviet nuclear program. Of course, you know, this is uh, a fantasy, but... Um, some people were, uh, you know, not everyone was, you know, keen, but Gorbachev, you know, uh, and his colleagues, they were extremely supportive. And I just I, I find it hard to believe that um, many countries um, would allow an adversary uh, access to these kinds. I mean, you're talking about, you know, unfortunately. So what if 200 people die? You know, that's kind of the attitude of most governments. I'm not saying it's the attitude of the American government, but many governments would say, okay, well, 200 people die, or we give an American access to our nuclear program. That's not an easy call. No, it's not. But it's the call they made. And um, there's a lot more we could discuss about this. I wish we had the time. But um, let's talk about these patients again. I mean, I mean, there, there's a question right there. Were any of them surprised to see an American there talking to them? I mean, what? Tell us about your personal interaction with them. I mean, were you allowed yeah. to get to know them a little bit? Was it all just? Oh, sure. An, no. Okay, so it wasn't no, just a clinical evaluation. It was, and then no, how many no, days no, were I you mean, there? We, you know, during your first uh, trip. Well, no, I mean, I was in the Soviet Union on and off for the next couple of years, not okay, a couple of days. Sure. So, I mean, this would be like any acutely ill patient that you would have where you would round on them a couple of times a day. Um, you know, you would get to know them. You could get to know their family members. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, you know, um, we had, well, as I say, we had about 204 patients that we considered to be at risk of uh, serious radiation injury. We had... Um, 29 deaths. Um, most of those deaths were from the injuries that we, we you know, we, we can do a bone marrow transplant and reverse the bone marrow failure, but radiation damages the lungs. Sure. We're not doing lung transplants, we're, we're doing bone marrow transplants. So you have these kind of pyrrhic victories where you have, your, your intervention is successful, but your patient dies. 
Um, but you have no choice. But as I said, you can't wait around to see what's going on with these other organs and tissues. But I, I got to know all of these um, firefighters very well. Um, and um, I'm still in touch with many of them. Um, uh, really? So, yeah, and they, they send me Christmas cards. One of them recently sent me a Christmas card uh, of him holding his grandchild. How about that? Which was very, very touching. Yeah. So, I mean, it was painful when they died uh, to see them die. But, but um, you know, something like 85% of them survived. And uh, I've kept them. We follow them. You know, my colleagues and I follow them at hospital number six over all these years. You know, we haven't abandoned them. Well, yeah, and we want to talk about that, too. Um, so your first, that very first trip, how long did that last? Because you were coming back and forth over two years, but how long were you there the first time? No, 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 not, not, I was fundamentally there for two years. I mean, I would come back for a week or two. Well, that's what I mean, but I mean, um, the very first trip, I mean, how long did that actually last? Oh, I mean, I guess I was there for a month or six weeks. So, uh, you know, that's interesting, too, because... You have a career, you know, back at home, um, and you know people always like to make this joke. Well, it's not like he's curing cancer, but in fact, you were curing cancer. I mean, that's your job. So, um, how how was it to leave that behind at home? I mean, how were you able to to manage that and and dedicate well, this time? Well, I uh, yeah. Well, I mean, my um, you know, I was at UCLA, and um, the the university was, um, I think, very kind. In allowing me to take as much time, you know, was uh, the chancellor and the, the the chairman of medicine were very kind to allow me to spend as much time as necessary. Um, you know, I we had a big transplant team at UCLA, um, and so that my colleagues that who didn't come, it was just Dick Champlin and I, um, you know, they were able to carry on our our normal activities uh, pretty much without interruption. Sure, sure. And did you get a chance to visit the actual site in Chernobyl? Oh, yeah. How long uh, after the point, incident? Well, I would say about three weeks, three or four weeks. I don't remember exactly. Um, you know, as I said, we, we never really exactly sure of the, um, of the dose, despite the use of uh, a num you know a variety of sophisticated techniques and i told my russian colleagues uh, or soviet colleagues to be accurate that I, I i needed to get down there and see the actual plant and and the um the nuclear fuel and see, just see ex exactly where these guys were to recreate uh in my mind exactly you know the physics of the of the situation and so um i mean they understood that of course and um, so you so, wanted to place uh, the workers where they were so the firemen how close were they you know who was on the roof right. who you know if somebody was just at home right. and they ended up here and they're you know a certain distance or you need to know these things because you there may be other patients out there that are part of the evacuation i mean and, and help us right. understand three weeks after this where are they in the fire suppression of the, the reactor? What are they working on at that moment when you fly over? Uh, well, they're still um, still dropping boron sand 
onto the reactor complex. They're doing that with helicopters. Right. This is way before um, way before uh, you start to consider um, the the scenes that are in this HBO um, teleseries uh, of guys on the roof cleaning up things. This is way way later. This, uh, you know, we kind of divide this dealing with the acute response and then then the mitigation of the accident. So, So the acute response involves putting out fires, dropping boron to try to quench the chain reaction and so forth and so on. Things like um, cleaning up the roof and, and building a sarcophagus and things are, are part of a mitigation strategy. They're not part of an, an acute response strategy. So you're right there in the middle of the acute response. I mean, so do you, did you they flew in on a helicopter? Did you go well, we over? Flew down, we, uh, we flew down, I flew down to Kiev by plane and then helicoptered into Chernobyl. So tell us what you saw in that helicopter trip. I mean, what and what what were you thinking at this moment? I mean, it's you're going into a dangerous area that still has a lot of unknowns. I mean, tell us about this. Yeah, well, I think it's um, having dealt, you know, sixteen hours a day with these firefighters, but not actually knowing exactly what they were into. I mean, you're you're focused on treating them. Sure. Uh, like acute accident victims. I mean, you know, now we're going to the accident scene. It's like being in the emergency room where they bring in a car crash victim. And, you know, after you stabilize them and so forth and so on, you'd be driving out to where the car crashed. And that, that's the analogy I would draw. Um, of course, by that point, Pripyat, which was the um, city about four kilometers from the um, reactor complex. You know, Pripyat was evacuated quite promptly. Um, so that was, a, I would say, a rather bizarre site because I, I, I walked around Pripyat for an hour or two. And, uh, you, know, it's a, you know, it's like going to one of these Western ghost towns because you have a, this is a high-rise city. Right. You have 50,000 people. Recently, recently built. You know, it's not uh, something that existed before there was a nuclear power station. Well, it was a model it was Soviet the, city, wasn't it? I mean, it was a place people right. wanted to live. It was a vibrant community. Right. Well, uh, you know, the, the Russians had a, a problem that we don't have. Now, we would we would never site build a city next to a nuclear power, four kilometers from a nuclear power station, because we can move people in, we can move supplies, and you know, we don't we're not depending on having repair shops and, and, and workers who can't get around. We don't need them living in a, such proximity. But these were called atomic cities. They were built so that the workers could get back and forth to the plant, so that the technical people who had to repair things could be living in proximity to the plant. Sure. Uh, I have to tell, tell you that um, the original plan for... Um, the Chernobyl nuclear power facility was to build it about 20 or 25 kilometers from Kiev. Um, and it was only that the Ukrainian Academy of Science objected that this accident didn't happen next to a city with a couple of million people living in it. Hmm. Unbelievable. 
So you're there, you're walking through the city after it's been evacuated, you're you're on a helicopter, and there's still smoke coming out of reactor number four at that moment, right? It, it, did you feel right. that, well, one, did you feel that your Soviet um, colleagues, as you say, were being as truthful as possible with you? I mean, did you feel like you understood the risks of actually physically going there? And, you know, did you have any trepidation about that? You know, we're doctors, nothing's going to happen to us. But I mean, if I, you know, for me to um, to have a handle on what I'm doing, um, it just was essential, you know, um, to go to the accident scene. I just couldn't reconstruct these things because, uh, you know, my involvement involvement with Chernobyl is uh, we're, we're focused on the acute effects of radiation. But uh, you probably know that, you know, I'm involved in major studies that have been going on for 30 years now to look at the health of hundreds of thousands of people, uh, about 700,000 uh, what they call liquidators. I, I have told my Russian friends that liquidators does not translate well into English, but um, that's that's the Russian word. Sure. 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 Uh, but we also have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that were evacuated and uh, permanently evacuated. Um, we have a, the people that were immediately evacuated from a 30-kilometer zone around the reactor complex. We have several hundred thousand people that were evacuated from contaminated lands, and several hundred thousand people that still live and will, will continue to live in contaminated lands. So, um, you know, the questions about what what are the health consequences for you know more than a million people is what's at stake now. And, uh, you know, it's impossible to to think about this, to have a sensible plan to uh, without actually, see, you know, being there and seeing what what's going on, what was the accident scene and so forth. It's just not just not possible. It's not reasonable to think you could do that. All right, everyone, that concludes part one. We'll pick up next time just as Dr. Gale is boarding a helicopter going over reactor number four. And we'll continue from there. See you next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.